and welcome to Prescription Advocacy. I'm Arielle Troster. And I'm Neely Kaplan-Mars. How are you doing? Well, you know, um, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> you know, eight months into a global pandemic, I'm doing okay. It's uh, It's been an interesting uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you know, here in Ontario, the government is briefly closed some things down and now it's opening them again uh you've been having flu shot drama (laughs) a lot of demands on the healthcare system and uh yeah i just every day i've been very lucky my daughter's school stayed open but uh every day i wonder if it's going to be the day that covid hits her school it's a lot it is well in today's episode we speak with dr clover hemmons about vulnerability. And I think we we use that term a lot. We talk about um, protecting our vulnerable populations, but we don't necessarily define who the population that we're speaking about when we say vulnerable people. And um, so this is an important place to, to pause and untangle that notion of vulnerable population. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've been hearing a lot about the economic impact of COVID on business owners and on people who have lost their jobs, which is indisputable. Um, But we also have a series of competing interests. And I know that you've been advocating a lot for more stringent measures that protect vulnerable communities that are more likely to get sick and to have support so that uh, businesses that are unsafe can stay closed until it's it's safe again. Yeah, so there was... uh project that was launched by some researchers at Yale University and at another university. They were combined, but they created this map of the United States, which shows not just the numbers of COVID in in different states, but it shows which populations are more vulnerable and therefore kind of looks at, you know, not just who is getting sick or who is dying, but what what was the pre-existing condition in that community? And we haven't done that in Canada. We, we've nodded to the disparities in healthcare. Like we've looked at some of the ways in which Indigenous people of color and um, Black Canadians are disproportionately affected by COVID and some people with disabilities and our seniors, but we haven't looked at that, you know, in a way to really map out every day when people look at those statistics and and all we see are these graphs of there's this number of cases or this number of deaths. We never get that data about what what was going on in those communities that led to those people being vulnerable to illness and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the people who are the most vulnerable have the least political capital, right? So. That's part of why we started this podcast, to try to shine a light on some of these stories that are not being told. So we hope uh, we hope you enjoy this interview. So, uh, Dr. Humans, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do for a living and, and what kind of activism really lights a fire under you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you. I, I really consider this a conversation. I'm looking forward to that. I am, uh, I'm going to call myself a healthcare advocate. I am a physician. I've been uh, in this business for several decades. I have a degree both in, in nursing and in medicine, women's studies, and a master's degree in quality improvement and patient safety. 
as well as significant training, including a master's certificate in physician leadership. I've trained and worked as a family physician for decades. I've worked in a comprehensive cradle-to-grave family practice and in student health and in occupational medicine as a medical manager. I've been the 96th president of the National Medical Women's Organization. I'm co-chair of a provincial women's physicians organization. I'm on the boards of several provincial and national medical organizations. I'm on committees addressing equity and diversity because I have a number of um, I, I, they're not projects, but issues that I'm that I'm passionate about. One of the things that I, I I narrowed it down to a couple. So we talked about you know what are vulnerable people, and um, I thought you know what let's look at the word vulnerable literally means harm, or to wound. So anybody that's vulnerable or open to harm is somebody that I'm going to hear and listen to. And my other thing lately in particular is that of anti-racism. Yes, I am Black, and I have a, a particular passion for anti-Black racism, but I cannot forget about others who have suffered. And so I lis- I'm listening carefully and trying to really understand also anti-Indigenous racism. And I don't have to tell you this, you've, you've heard the more recent stories, but these aren't new. They're just becoming more open and people are more um, able to, to listen and accept that they're wrong. So I'm trying to be, um, I'm trying to grow in my reconciliation of, of anti-Indigenous racism as well. I also have issues with sexism, ageism, and ableism, and discrimination if, on, by virtue of people's orientation. And I find all of that obviously compounded by any of the above, which includes if, you're, if you are going to be discriminating against people because of their gender, that just adds that whole intersectional sort of angle to it. So I'm on. My, my job, as far as I'm concerned, is to amplify people's messages. I aim to act locally and hope for sort of a global um, spread of justice and equity. I am a leader in a number of roles, and I should make it very clear that anything I say today is my opinion. I'm not speaking on their behalf, and I'm on a lot of committees, and so I definitely don't want anybody to assume that it's their opinion, but because it's mine and I have plenty of them. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) And that's why you're here. So we thought we could open this conversation. Um, You know, Neely and I started this podcast in the midst of this terrible pandemic, um, largely because we were noticing that women and non-binary people and people from all sorts of different communities were really starting to get involved in advocacy sort of off the side of our desks, largely Mm -hmm. out of a sense of urgency. And so... We're curious to hear from you, um, based on your knowledge of uh, anti-racism and different vulnerabilities in the community, how do you think this pandemic is hitting the communities that you are most concerned about or that you think are the most vulnerable in Canada? I do have some particular um, passions right now. I have an elderly parent that is in a retirement home, needless to say. I watch this very carefully. I work in a hospital setting where um, we are uh, very careful about COVID screening, et cetera. But obviously when I go to visit my mom, I have to go through their screen. And with my quality improvement background and patient safety background, sometimes I I do have a hard time understanding the logic behind some of the um, interventions that I see as I attempt to visit her. In general, I actually has she has a wonderful um, retirement home, but they are literally trying to do what's right and follow the rules. 
So the elderly are vulnerable because they are literally, although it's their home, what happens to them in their daily lives is very much dependent of what about what our government policies and sort of the, the downstream effect on the, the retirement homes and long-term care, as you well know, um, how they implement it. I'm fortunate, um, but I, I, I watch that with care. So the people that I find that have been particularly um, affected by this are not just the long-term care residents, not just the retirement home residents, the individuals that work in the settings, the PSWs, um, the support staff, the cleaners, essential caregivers, all those people um, play a huge role and they've all been very much affected by the policies. Women in particular have had a tremendous uh, toll during this time. Not only are they usually caring for their children and their and their families, they often have a precarious roles um, in, in the workplace, then they're trying to balance that with trying to uh, look after children who may or may not be going to school, maybe homeschooled, maybe in part-time work, may have lost their jobs because of the COVID uh, pandemic and the various policies around closure, trying to make ends meet, multiple jobs, often from the, those area codes that are um, in areas that are, as they call it, sort of the red, the red zone for COVID, and are often the ones that are getting sick. We already know that the people that are marginalized and racialized are the ones that have been in healthcare, direct healthcare, that have paid the ultimate price with their demise. Um, there's not enough I can say about that. Nobody's really talking about what's going on with the people that have disabilities, whether they be physical or mental. Um, a lot of the policies that we're putting in place for COVID testing, et cetera, these are not easily accessed by these, these folks. Unless they have individuals that can help get them to the COVID assessment centers or to the drive-throughs, um, they're not able to be tested. They're not able to get on some of the public transports that were taking them from point A to point B. Their existence wasn't easy to begin with. And this has just added another layer of absolute devastating complexity. They're not being heard. That's problematic for me. We talk about the effect on children. We have, shall I say, interesting conversations uh, where I work around the value of life. You know, who's being affected more? I'm talking about, you know, looking at the value of life for the elderly versus children, all both of whom are having tremendous mental distress from this. I, my, my question is, why are we even having that conversation? Why is it one or the other? I think both ends of the spectrum have value and we should be looking at why we can't make it happen so that they both are given the opportunity to, to thrive and if not thrive, at least survive above the baseline misery that we're currently having now. I spoke to a patient uh, this week whose father died of bed sores. Um, mm. and, um, and one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, he died in his 90s and um if instead it had been a child who had mm. bed sores or a younger person maybe with disabilities who had bed sores and because they were being neglected by caregivers would there have been more you know public outrage and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um there is a, a certain degree of ageism involved in our turning the a blind eye to the the number of of our seniors who have died in long-term care um but let, let's talk about racism and vulnerability what 
what do you think is is going on in in the pandemic and even before the pandemic as well? One of the committees that I I will say that I we we're just starting, and you've probably heard of the Black North Initiative. This initiative is is attempting to look at this by addressing the fact that there has lo- always been, uh, if you want to, a discordance between rates of disease depending on uh, your your race and your sex. We know that. Um, so we know, for example, there's higher rates of high blood pressure and diabetes amongst black women in Ontario versus white women. Higher rates of prostate cancer among black men compared to other groups in Canada. And perhaps even more, they, they cone down even higher rates of the first episode of schizophrenia in immigrants of a particular Caribbean group compared to the, um, the general population. So some of that is already there. And the bottom line is that there's a lack of culturally competent care for many people, and this can lead to greater racial and ethnic disparities. If you can't understand the experience of what people are trying to tell you, and I'll give you an example. A woman came in to emerge. They thought she was talking nonsense. They thought perhaps she was having some dementia. Just so happened, they asked the internist to see them who happened to have been from a particular island that understood the woman was speaking Patois. And once he went in to speak with her, he fully understood what she was trying to say. But for him, she might have been diagnosed as having dementia and given medication that was inappropriate. That's just an example. So you add that now to um, an unprecedented pandemic where every day we're evolving in our knowledge and, and trying various methods to address it. And you add that to people who are understaffed and perhaps a little uh, freaked out. I don't use the word freaked out because depending on um, where you're at, that might mean depression, that might mean anxiety. Um, so you can imagine that there's been a lot of healthcare workers that are anxious. And if we're, we're anxious and we're quote, in the know, you can imagine how it's affecting other people. So we recognize that there's a lack of culturally competent care lack of understanding about what it might mean to people. This is not new by any means, but you add that to, you know, loss of job, let's call it food insecurity, not being able to even get to the, on, on a bus, let's say, to, uh, to visit your loved one in a place where perhaps you could have before, um, not understanding the reason why you can't get there. So there's there are people like us that understand and are anxious and sometimes furious. And there are others that are just literally feel like they've been abandoned. And that is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for speaking to that. And so you're speaking about when people actually arrive to access health care, the discrimination that's in the healthcare care system. Um, and now that we know, based on the, the segregated race-based data that we're starting to get about COVID, about the disproportionate mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm of COVID on racialized communities, specifically immigrant, black and indigenous communities. I don't know if you saw, there was a report that came out just today called Behind Closed Doors, Exposing Migrant Care Worker Exploitation During COVID-19 that speaks to some of the conditions, right? So this is a story in the Globe and Mail. It says nannies and home caregivers toiling 12 to 14 hours a day through weekends and holidays, doing extra cleaning, disinfecting childcare, trapped in their employer's homes because they're no longer allowed to go outside on their own. Uh, 
Right. So this isn't even PSWs working in in long term term care facilities. Right. We know the conditions are terrible. This is this is um, living caregivers whose immigration right. status depends on maintaining employment inside these private homes. Right. It's. I think we've barely scratched the surface of the impact of this pandemic on vulnerable people, specifically migrant workers in Canada. Uh, actually, that's uh, an amazingly um, in, insightful um, journalistic article. I, I, I like the idea, they get the idea that most of the individuals that are in these homes, how many of them have their own computers to Skype with? Do they have their tablets to Skype with? Can they get the message out? Where are their supports? Typically, you know, the nannies have their, their own supports. We call it the nanny network. So if we need a nanny, you just ask a nanny because they know who's available. They, they, they got it. How much of that is, avail- is likely to happen now? With all this extra work they're doing, are they being paid for it? Something tells me maybe not. Yeah, a lot of them are um, working tons of unpaid overtime. And uh, it says here they, they surveyed 200 migrant care workers. And a lot of them said they were no longer permitted to leave their employer's house to buy groceries, go for a walk, or see anyone else in their social network, right? So that kind of extreme mm-hmm. isolation is super dangerous and upsetting. And not logical, because I'm not quite sure why they can't go outside. Mind you, not a lot of stuff we do right now is logical, but that's definitely not logical. And that's called that's called um, solitary confinement. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, used to say on the Twitter, we used to call it pandemic prison. Right. Yeah. Um, But it's happening on a grand scale and it's really showing the racial and class based disparities of how people are experiencing this pandemic. And and, and we haven't really heard much about actual migrant workers, the ones that we know had a huge outbreak of COVID in the Essex region. So close to the Windsor border and very much depending on who you worked for, um, determine what kind of care you got. They don't want to complain. A lot of them are in substandard housing, if you want to call it that. They're like barracks. They're in, so they're in bunk beds. You can imagine that's going to fly through there like nobody's business because they don't have separate bathrooms. They don't have, you know, you can't physically isolate. You can't physically distance um, and you can't really complain. And sometimes those doors were locked. So um, and they, they're not really saying too much because they're really here in a precarious circumstance and their families abroad or depending on it. I'm not even sure if they're being paid while they're sick. So what came out of that was some public health guidelines in that area. And I should say there were a number of very brave advocacy focused physicians that in that area that just said, no, we're not doing this. These individuals need specific care. They need to be attended to. We have to hear what's going on. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of them for sticking up for the patients in that area. I suspect there's lots of stuff we didn't hear about what's going on there. And I don't know that we ever will um, because of the tenuous circumstances that they have. I'm kind of glad we heard about the nanny and in-home, in-home workers right now. So what are you seeing among the patients that you work with in terms so, of this pandemic and beyond? So I, I'm, in a, I'm in a hospital setting. So there are a number of things that have gone on in a hospital setting, and I'm not going to say where, but... Suffice to say, I also work in a, and I work in a COVID assessment center. So yeah, I see hundreds of people <laughs> uh, routinely. And well, actually, since September, we see a lot of school children. Prior to that, though, it was largely individuals that were either having to fly, visit loved ones in long-term care, healthcare practitioners um, who were providing care. Lots of evol- evolution since then, but since September, I'd say half the 
the people we see are school-aged um, children and their parents. And if not school-aged, um, some of them are quite young and they're in daycare and just trying to meet the needs of keeping people um, feeling comfortable that where they're sending their children is safe. Thinking about like vulnerability, I, I worry about the kids who are already living in poverty, the kids mm-hmm. who don't have a library of books at home, mm-hmm. who don't have parents who necessarily are able to, you know, give them other forms of enrichment. They don't have access to social engagement of any other kind if they don't go to school, you know, if they live in a home where there's domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Those are the mm-hmm. vulnerable kids who they need to be in school because school is the thing that is possibly life-saving for them and changes their trajectory. And, you know, it's it's not just are they going to homeschool or are they going to go to school in the classroom? The, the kids who are homeschooling, who have all the other advantages, they're going to be fine, but they would be fine no matter what. And the kids who mm-hmm. are, maybe their parents are more scared of sending them to school because their parents are going to be more profoundly affected if their child comes home sick. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like there are lots of reasons that that people are choosing to keep their kids at home, but many of those same kids are, are really at a huge disadvantage if they're at home. You've nailed an extraordinarily important um, subgroup. And these are not just children. So anybody that's at risk for family violence, as we're calling it more now, so it is... Um, this is this is a this is a group that, as you quite rightly pointed out, where when they go to school, they are literally given an opportunity to be assessed, to be nurtured, both uh, potentially emotionally as well as um, um, educationally, and that's not happening. We are losing, we're potentially losing both adults and children in this way. We know that domestic violence against women. When you can't go out and uh, you can't uh, get away from your abuser, uh, you are at risk for serious harm. I don't even think we're going to know just how much harm has been perpetuated until this thing's over. And then for some, for many people, it will be too late. For the children, the harm that we, could be perpetuated, I'm going to call it, or perpetrated, and in, and in perpetuity in this case, because it's going to be a long-term, um, long-term consequences. If, for example, if you go to school, the teacher could have picked up on the abuse, that's not happening. That's just one thing. If at school they even had a, some kind of a, uh, a program where you, the, ch- the children got fed, that's not happening. If at school the children were still being abused at home, but they had a way of developing resilience because they had somebody to talk to and some plans that they, uh, they could make to avoid some of the, the worst parts of it, it's not happening. I am scared for all these children that we are missing. I'm scared for all the women that we're missing. And I'm scared for all the vulnerable, gendered um, relationships. So you don't just, it's not just women, but people that have intersectional uh, relationships, people that have partnerships that are less than healthy. And this also happens to people who are not in a straight relationship. We don't really talk about them, but it, it happens. They are being isolated right now, and they are in danger. Uh, I am I am concerned, and we're not hearing their voices. Where are we going to be able to hear them? It's not in any kind of public health policy. There's no visitation. During a pandemic, you don't visit homes to check to see if they're okay. I happen to know of individuals that where there are children that are at harm, that are, um, sorry, at risk for harm, where 
what are you going to do, a virtual uh, visit, a phone visit? Well, we all know that's not going to work. So there are children and adults being harmed right now based on the policies that we currently have. One of the things that Ariel and I have talked a lot about is like what activism and advocacy can we participate in in order to deal with the the sense of hopelessness or the sense that you know all these vulnerable populations are being harmed and um, you know how do you give voice to the marginalized? For me, like I I just joined the Income Security Advocacy Center as a board member, so I'm learning about public legal education, which is really cool because it's outside of outside of medicine, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you can do as an advocate is, is volunteer, right? Like that, mm-hmm. I, I'm doing that it, because that is how you reach the people who live in poverty. That is how you, you help if you're not directly um, working. Like I'm obviously, I'm a doctor, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how the legal clinics themselves work, but I can help to participate in an organization that does that work and and make sure that people know their rights. So if you're a migrant worker and you're disadvantaged, you go to those legal clinics and they help you to understand what you're entitled to. Or if you're in any of any of the situations that we described, if you're a person living with disabilities and you've been fired from your job or, you know, whatever, like it, it's forms of advocacy that we can do in addition, of course, to our day jobs for you or um, for others, what do you think is, uh, you know, a way to to advocate for the vulnerable right now? There, there are two things I would say, and this is this is even with when the pandemic hopefully ends in the next year or so, because I'm I'm praying for that. Um, one is recognizing that the idea of mentorship, and we talked about that a little bit. And it, so in this case, we're not talking about work; we're talking about ways to spread the ability of individuals and vulnerable individuals in multiple sectors so acting locally but hoping hoping that it'll propagate and that means first of all yes giving of yourself but being in a place so that these individuals can help others so pick your places pick the health centers if this if that's where your area of expertise is and this is an area where um you can maybe be heard first volunteer there and help individuals let's say there's say there's some psw courses is there a place for you to go there and give a talk about healthcare and perhaps healthcare uh, vulnerabilities and rights and what they can do to help themselves? What about going to school? Is are there areas where you can where you can provide advocacy efforts around um, equity, justice, and healthcare so they can hear you because they do tend to trust their doctors, particularly family doctors. The key now, though, is how to do that. In the, in the past, we could volunteer and show up. And there's an auditorium full of people that want to get some free advice, right? Is there a way to um, do some virtual community uh, advocacy that individuals could get access to, whether it by by newsletter, newspaper, um, blog, whatever? And however it's done, the key here, as what I have found, is if you approach this from an, literally from an open an open mindset, don't, don't make any assumptions as you try to park your judgments at the door and so they hear that you're listening because they look at us as being, you know, the one sometimes as the 1%. That's actually not where you want to be. You want to be able to meet them where they're at. And then using the gifts and the um, privileges that we've had either in education or experience to help them where they're at so they can take that information 
and um, use it for improving their their lives and then hopefully others who come along. And that's what I talk about acting locally, but hopefully moving, I say globally, but really even just further past the neighborhood is a good start. Did you in your career encounter um, explicit or implicit racism? Did you have a mentor or somebody who helped you to see your way through your career? So interestingly enough, I, 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 well, I won't say I had a mentor. What I did have and still have are a number of trusted individuals that I could sort of speak to. And I've been very fortunate in a, in a way that I, 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 I wasn't brought up in, in a rich family, which was actually probably for my benefit. But I was my richness was in in my friendships, and in the type of friendships I had. There, we my mother used to call us all the United Nations, and as a result, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about what people should look like or act like. That was just by sheer upbringing. Um, so when stuff happened, I could just call them up and go, "Hey, um, is this supposed to be like this? Or I, I'm thinking this doesn't." I'm getting some really bad vibes here. I don't like this. So um, I've been fortunate that way. I have definitely had, I've been told to get my end, my end self out of the room. And I said to them, you know what? I said, your choice. And I walked away. I was angry. And I asked myself, why am I angry? Well, anybody that feels that they've literally been rejected by, by virtue of their skin color and um, it's a slap in the face. But I was reassured because the individual who did have this patient was quite angry on my behalf as well. So that's helpful. I, I think I was also fortunate because I have a, I guess I have a strong sense of um, integrity in self. Where did that come from? I, I presume it came from all these people that came before me, the teachers that supported me, my friends that supported me, my parents that supported me, my family that supports me to make me think that I have value. Does it mean that I don't have a lot of other insecurities? Uh, no, it means I still have lots of those other insecurities, but um, I still feel like I have a line that you can't go past, after which point um, we have a conversation or I walk away. And I feel free to do that. Amazing. I imagine that you are you're a strong and confident person. <laughs> and that's, you know, that reliance also on friendships on people who whom you can turn to for support is really important and i mean that's one of the that's one of the factors in resilience right but i think that you know starting to have conversations in public fora about what really are people's experiences of being vulnerable you know, so we talk about others as these are vulnerable populations, but we also have our own vulnerabilities and talking about our own vulnerabilities helps to um, destigmatize and 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 it helps to um, to create that on honest conversation about what we're faced with, both as practitioners as well as as, you know, just uh, people in the community. So thank you again so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I, I, I hope one day when I come to Ottawa, when I travel again, we'll have the opportunity to virtually, not so virtually meet. I look forward to that. So it's been my honor to speak with you, and I thank you.
You've been listening to Prescription Advocacy, co-hosted by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth and Ariel Troster, produced by Alana Stewart. You can visit us on Twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca, where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening.